Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speaker and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. If you are viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Amy Kapoor. She is a third year internal medicine resident here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. She attended Baylor University uh, for her undergraduate education where she earned a bachelor's degree in biology. She then attended Nova Southeastern University for her medical education. She now serves as the ambulatory chief resident where she coordinates monthly act academic didactics Upon completion of her residency training, Dr. Kapoor is thrilled to be joining the Northeast Georgia Physicians Group as a hospitalist at the Brazelton campus. Dr. Kapoor. Awesome. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. Um, so I'm uh, Amy. Nice to meet you guys if you haven't met before. Um, just want to thank Jimmy for allowing me to present um, for Grand Rounds today. Um, a thank you to Dr. Gross, who is such a great mentor throughout this process. And then a special thank you to Dr. Murthy, who also um, uh, was of great assistance with helping me put this together. So. Um, today's Grand Rounds is going to be about community-acquired pneumonia. Um, I kind of wanted the title to be a little witty to get your attention, so cap the duration. Can we shorten the course for cap? So I'm going to address um, a couple of things. So let's first start off with disclosure. So I do not have any um, disclosures or um, anything of that sort during this uh, continued medical education activity. So what are uh, objectives that I will be covering today? Um, first and foremost would be to cover the CAP guidelines, just a refresher and with a lot of residents in here, I think that's a great learning point. Um, we'll compare outcomes of community-acquired pneumonia with three days versus eight days of duration, and then um, define the tools and scoring systems used in my um, article along with what IDSA recommends, and then discuss impl implications of evidence to see if we can actually bring this to our clinical practice. So the agenda, um, I'm going to run through a clinical scenario to get, you know, the your juice is flowing, um, background of community-acquired pneumonia, guidelines, uh, PICO question, um, just understand the validity, exclusion, inclusion criteria. We'll discuss the primary outcome and the secondary outcomes along with limitations, adverse events, and then um, end the uh, grand rounds with a discussion of, um, of the topic. So let's start off with the clinical scenario. So you have a 70-year-old woman who is evaluated in the emergency department for a three-week history of worsening cough and dyspnea. She's otherwise healthy and has no history of fever, chills, sweats, or sick contacts. She has no current medication. On physical exam, her pulse was 110 beats per minute and respiration rate was at 26 breaths per minute. Other vitals are normal. Oxygen sats are at 92% on room air. Her lung exam um, revealed inspiratory crackles bilaterally, and then her cardiovascular exam overall was unremarkable. Um, chest radiograph shows left lower lobe infiltrates, uh, beta-lactam antibiotic therapy was initiated. So which of the following is the most appropriate antibiotic treatment duration? So would you treat this patient with three days of this beta-lactam, two weeks, five to eight days, depending on her symptoms, 
one dose of IV antibiotics in the ED, or do you just send them home and tell them to follow up with PCP? So just kind of let this simmer uh, as I go through my presentation. So let's start off with the definition of community-acquired pneumonia. So it's essentially any pneumonia that's acquired outside of the hospital setting. Usually it's an infection um, mostly from a viral or a bacterial etiology, but oftentimes we do see fungal and bacterial infections, and by that time they're already in the ICU. So the incidence of CAP um, is, you know, clearly going to be higher in elder individuals, and um, it's actually 25 times, 25 times higher than younger in patients. And then the number of cases is projected to increase due to the aging of the global population um, uh, within the next several years. 600,000 to 800,000 admissions annually in the United States is what's seen currently. And then the Healthcare Cost and Utilization Project, which is the largest collection of longitudinal hospital care data in the U.S., showed that in 2018, that community-acquired pneumonia was the um, sixth most common cause of hospitalizations, um, but now it is the top three. And so one being sepsis, two heart failure, and the third being community-acquired pneumonia, or just pneumonia in general. So it's important to understand causative um, organisms um, as they have variable virulence and severity of illness, which influences the site of care um, and is used to guide the empiric antibiotic therapy. So what do I mean by this? So understanding the patient's risk factor. So heavy alcohol use, strep pneumonia, um, Klebsiella, which is that current jelly sputum that we're all used to seeing in our boards. Um, for COPD, uh, like listed, Haemophilus influenza, strep pneumonia, Moraxella. You also have the atypicals like Legionella. Um, and then structural lung disease, um, Streptococcus, staph. And then obviously with aspiration, you're going to have more so kind of like the oral anaerobes. And then um, greater than 65 years of age, more common and prone to having um, influenza infections. And then post-viral infections or secondary bacterial infections most commonly consist of Staph aureus, Streptococcus pyogenes, and um, uh, Strep pneumoniae. So uh, with the different types of our categories with the community-acquired pneumonia, um, there's actually three, but due to interest of time in my article, I'm not going to be going into the viral component today. So we'll be talking about the typical versus atypical causes. So uh, the most common typical cause is a strep pneumonia, which can make up to 15 to 20% of your pneumonias um, in the United States. And then like listed, Haemophilus influenza, Moraxella, Staph aureus, um, and then your uh, aerobic gram negatives such as Klebsiella and E. coli, and then anaerobes, uh, which are often associated with aspiration, but that kind of goes more towards your aspiration pneumonia. And then for the atypical bacteria, these are the most common, um, your Legionella, Mycoplasma, Chlamydia, um, and then you have your um, Chlamydia cystase, which is often from birds as their hosts, and then Coxiella burnetti is usually from livestock and can cause Q fever similar to um, an influenza infection. So let's talk about diagnosis, and I think this is an area that um, Oftentimes, we're not really following as well as we should. And I only say that because um, I think with medicine, we sometimes tend to overutilize our resources. So 
with um, the IDSA advises diagnosing CAP uh, based on suggestive imaging um, with characteristics on infiltrates of chest radiographs with or without microbiological data. So the obtaining, so with the sputum cultures, obtaining gram stain and culture is actually recommended only in a certain cases. So um, I'm going to list a few. So one big one being uh, severe community-acquired pneumonia, which I will um, go over in the next couple of slides of what that encompasses. But um, patients who are empirically treated for MRSA or Pseudomonas should have um, sputum cultures um, with gram stain, along with any patient pre previously infected with MRSA or Pseudomonas. Um, patients that were hospitalized in the last 90 days and returning to the hospital with pneumonia, uh, cavitary lesions, failing outpatient therapy, and any kind of underlying structural disease, these are all patients that we should be getting the sputum culture and gram stain. Blood culture, similarly, only in cases where we're worried about MRSA or Pseudomonas and, or if the patient has severe community-acquired pneumonia. For macrolide monotherapy, this is more so for outpatient therapy, um, and then the use of procalcitonin. So even you could all, all get the procal in the beginning, but if your patient's procal is low, but you have evidence of pneumonia, you have to still go for you still have to go forward to treat. So it's not something that necessarily has to be positive in order to treat a patient. And then the use of corticosteroids is uh, mostly in septic shock, and at this point, they're usually in the ICU. Other things I want to touch on that are not in here is that um, urine for pneumococcal antigen and Legionella uh, antigen, those are um, recommended only in severe community-acquired pneumonia. So I keep talking about the severe community-acquired pneumonia, and so there's criteria for it, so I'm going to discuss that on the next slide. So um, what is it? So it basically is either one major criteria or three minor. So one major criteria being septic shock with um, need for pressors, any kind of respiratory failure on mechanical ventilation, and then minor criteria as listed, um, uh, you're uh, tachypnic, um, you have multilobar infiltrates on imaging, uremia, confusion, so you need at least three of these or one of the major criteria to be considered a severe community-acquired pneumonia. So CAP should be suspected and chest imaging performed in any patient presenting with a fever associated with cough, dyspnea, or chest pain. Radiological patterns help and give clues on what type of particular pathogen you're treating. So just, this is just another review that lobar pneumonia um, most commonly have strep pneumonia as your agent. Right lower node pneumonia is most commonly with oral anaerobes. Um, lung abscess, um, as you can see, necordia, cinnamyces. Interstitial infiltrates, more of your atypical pathogens like Legionella, mycoplasma. And then your pleural effusion and empyemas are um, most likely going to be MRSA, but you could have some, um, uh, some um, other causes too and other oral anaerobes. So let's dive into the treatment. So um, non-severe inpatient pneumonia. So basically the patients that didn't meet those major or minor criteria that I just listed, uh, standard regimen is a beta-lactam and a macrolide, or you could do a fluoroquinolone. However, if the patient, if you're concerned for MRSA or patients had MRSA before, you could go ahead and add MRSA coverage with either vancomycin or linazolid and do a PCR to kind of further allow for de-escalation. For severe inpatient pneumonia, um, 
you want to do either a beta-lactam uh, with a macrolide or a beta-lactam with fluoroquinolone. Um, however, there's stronger um, evidence that beta-lactam and macrolide are superior to the beta-lactam and fluoroquinolone. And, you know, same kind of concept here. If the patient has had a history of MRSA, pseudomonas, um, you're worried. So you can go ahead and start the antibiotic therapy and de-escalate after you get your PCR. So this just kind of reiterates what I just said. So although in 2007 IDSA, you know, were okay with either or, now there's stronger evidence in favor of the beta-lactam and the macrolide combination. So duration of treatment, um, I've often kind of seen this variability, I feel, um, you know, with how patients are treated. And so this is kind of what the IDSA recommends. You want to guide the treatment based off of their clinical stability. So that's resolution of any kind of abnormal vital signs, their heart rate, respiratory rate, um, their ability to eat, and their mentation. Treatment should be continued until the patient's um, stability, but for no less than five days. Okay, so um, for so European CAP guidelines, so I, I just went over all the IDSA and the ATS guidelines. Um, I want to touch a little bit on the European guidelines just because in the study I'm going to be presenting, um, it was mostly in Europe. So I think this gives like a good um, comparison and contrast on um, the differences. So the way the European um, Society, uh, Respiratory Society, and the European Society for Clinical Microbiology and ID, their version of, um, um, you know, their uh, IDSA guidelines, is that they define CAP with an acute illness with cough and at least one of new focal chest signs. And focal chest signs essentially just meaning um, wheezing, bronchial sounds, decreased chest, compression, uh, chest um, uh, expansion fevers, dyspnea, tachypnea, and then or, or any definitive radiological finding. And they typically like their duration of antibiotics to be between five and eight days. And um, their kind of guidelines on treatment are more so monotherapy um, unless there's a higher or unless there's severe pneumonia and the patient has more risk factors. So typically they prefer like Augmentin or a third gener generation cephalosporin like ceftriaxone or cefoxamine. So once again, just kind of reiterating their treatment options. So as you can see, it says amino penicillin, which is basically your augmentin, your amoxicillin, plus or minus macrolide. So it's not something that, that necessarily has to occur. Um, you could do um, uh, augmentin, plus or minus macrolide, like I mentioned, um, and any kind of anti-pseudomonal cephalosporins, um, ceftriaxone. You could do uh, levofloxacin, um, but it's not a strong indication to do a combination therapy. And something um, I want to mention is that uh, although with IDSA guidelines, there are certain criteria to get your sputum cultures, to get your blood cultures, but for the European CAP guidelines, they actually recommend that you, before, if the patient's hospitalized, to go ahead and have gram stains and um, culture along with two sets of uh, blood cultures as well. So um, the authors of the, the journal that I'm presenting today, or the article, actually did a literature review just to kind of assess and see what exactly is out there as far as understanding this duration of antibiotics for patients with community-acquired pneumonia. So 
they searched PubMed with no language restrictions um, between 1947 and 2020. Um, they've used words like antibiotic duration, community-acquired pneumonia, randomization. Um, and among the 277 studies found, most randomized trials uh, showed, that, showed comparisons only greater than five days or equal to five days for patients admitted into the hospital. So of those, only one clinical trial in 2006 showed a small sample size of 119 patients that studied the duration of three days in adult patients admitted in the hospital with few comorbidities. So it was a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, non-inferior trial in the Netherlands. Um, and they, the participants mostly had um, between class 2 to class 3 PSI index. And the intervention was amoxicillin versus placebo for five days. Um, and it showed that discontinuing amoxicillin treatment after three days was non-inferior to discontinuing it after eight days in adults admitted to the hospital with mild to moderate uh, severe community-acquired pneumonia. So with this study, it's, you know, I still wasn't very pleased just because of the small sample size, younger population, and then the severity of illness wasn't very significant because your PSI was averaging around two. So then I, you know, searched and tried to find more literature to get a better understanding of, you know, what's out there as far as duration for antibiotics. So this um, systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in 2018, this showed, or this was searched with PubMed, um, MBOS, Cochrane, the clinicaltrials.gov, and this compared the efficacy and the safety between um, less than six days or greater than seven days. So that was there to comparisons for duration. Um, and, and this study occurred, or this meta-analysis was basically all, all the, most of the countries in Europe, um, and they weren't all represented equally. And so of the 21 trials, 19 out of the 21 were randomized. And then um, they showed that short course treatment was associated with fewer serious adverse events um, compared to the longer treatment. And, um, and the reason this study, I feel like, wasn't still something that we could use to implement in our practice was because there was also uh, outpatient um, uh, uh, literature or outpatient uh, participants that were part of it as well. Um, and then um, the sample size actually was okay. And then five, actually five of the studies that they mentioned in this meta-analysis used antibiotics that weren't FDA approved. So I wasn't um, too keen on using this in my practice. So then um, a randomized controlled trial with sufficient sample size that was also for patients inpatient um, assessed short treatment duration, and that was this uh, article that was published in The Lancet where discontinuing beta-lactam treatment after three days for patients for community-acquired com community pneumonia and non-critical care wards. And this was a double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled, non-inferiority trial. So I wanted to put it in a PICO layout just to kind of give you um, an organized perspective of the study. And I, I think it often helps residents kind of see the flow of um, where we're at and where we're trying to go. So the population, adult patients between ages of 54 and 85 years old, diagnosed with community-acquired pneumonia. The intervention was a beta-lactam um, augmentin, uh, three days versus eight days of treatment. 
And then the outcome was beta-lactam treatment after three days, was it non-inferior to eight days of treatment? So that was the question we're essentially trying to ask. So um, it was a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial, uh, parallel one-to-one -one ratio. Um, participants, clinicians, and study staff were all masked to treatment allocation. Uh, Multi-centric with 16 French hospitals, so it was all in Europe. Um, they all, all the patients actually had similar baseline characteristics, which I will go in detail, but for the most part, moderately severe community-acquired pneumonia, fevers, and then they all had um, stable creatinine levels. So initially, 706 patients were assessed, and then 310 were enrolled because they didn't meet um, eligibility criteria, which we'll discuss in the inclusion and inclusion criteria. And you had two groups, the placebo and then the beta-lactam group. And then it was an intent-to-treat approach, and the assessments were made on day 0, 15, and 30 in person. Um, so randomization was done using a web-based system, and including 310 patients provided 80% power to show non-inferiority using the lower bound of the two-sided 95% confidence interval um, of the percent difference in proportions of patients who are cured. So in simpler terms, 80% power, you have an 80% chance of seeing a difference if there is one. So this is the eligibility criteria. So you have 706 patients, um, 396 were excluded due to the following. So complicated pneumonia, um, uh, kidney dysfunction, um, their decline in participation, which led us to 310. So um, these are some of the demographics and clinical characteristics of the trial participants. Um, as you can see, um, the age, well, so before I even get to that, this data was actually pooled. Um, so once, once the patients that, the 310 patients that were enrolled, they did a retrospective analysis of this patient's hospitalization where they basically went through all these different factors. So this is essentially, this uh, chart is essentially what their characteristics were on day zero. So um, the median age was approximately 73 years of age. 123 of the 303 participants were uh, female. 70, 73 patients had at least two comorbidities. The median temperature was 101.6, so they all had fevers. Um, 119 of the 303 participants needed oxygen therapy, and um, most of the common comorbidities were heart failure and COPD. And um, they also used the uh, pneumonia severity index score to help kind of understand the morbidity. And um, I'm going to kind of refresh your memory on that. But the mean of that was um, 82. So just to touch base on this, um, comparison of the PSI versus Curve 65, you have equal sensitivity of mortality prediction. However, Curve 65 has a higher specificity than PSI. CURB-65 does have a lower sensitivity than the PSI score in predicting ICU admission. And per the IDSA and ATS guidelines, they do prefer that we use the um, pneumonia severity index over the CURB-65. So um, just a little chart to review the different classes. And typically with uh, class 3 is where we want to have your patients um, admitted to observation and or hospitalized. But by class Four, that's you know definite need for hospitalization and then your curb 65 so um, with this uh, you t if you have a number greater than one 
um, you're going to be at moderate to high risk, so that deems them of needing hospitalization. Um, so just a refresher, you have a patient that comes in, concerned for pneumonia, you're doing the workup, determine the PSI to determine the admission criteria, then you give them your empiric antibiotic therapy, and then you determine the CAP severity as initial management, and then it kind of helps you um, with the branching point of where you're going to go, ICU versus inpatient. So the way that this uh, article defined community-acquired pneumonia was at least one acute clinical signs compatible with pneumonia, temperature, um, so fever, in 48 hours prior to admission, and any kind of new pulmonary infiltrate. So you had to have all three of these um, to be part of that eligibility criteria. So this is just another, um, you know, table which shows the common characteristics of these patients. So you see this CAP, uh, community-acquired pneumonia score. So they never really went into the specifics of this scoring system. Um, they, it basically was just something that the, it was very subjective. Um, patients would explain their pneumonia symptoms and their quality of life. So it, it just wasn't something that was too harped on into the study. Um, they had, the, most of these patients, or actually all of them, there's no AKIs or any kind of kidney dysfunction. CRP was uh, between 10 to 13, 10.4 to 13.4 to be specific. Procal was only checked in the beginning, and they did not do a follow-up procalcitonin. Um, and uh, of note, 80 of the participants did have complicated pneumonia, and they were excluded. So speaking of exclusion criteria, any patients with severe complicated community-acquired pneumonia with abscess, pleurofusion, um, immunosuppression, um, or any kind of suspicion for HAP were all excluded. And then for inclusion criteria, it was anybody greater than 18, so adults, even though the range was more so in the 50s to 70s. And then the moderately severe community-acquired pneumonia, which they used the PSI score to kind of help determine. So they basically did mild, which was no hospitalization, moderate, uh, moderate severe pneumonia, which was just inpatient admission, not in the ICU. And then they considered severe pneumonia um, for patients that were in the ICU. Um, so the treatment uh, modality was they were either treated with IV or oral beta-lactam treatment. Um, so they were given amoxic, uh, they were given augmentin, and they were given augmentin or third generation cephalosporin. So I say that only to tell you that the three days, so the patients were admitted, they were given either augmentin or third generation cephalosporin, and on day three is when they were part of the trial. So prior to that third day, they were given either one. So I just wanted to clarify that. But after the um, initiation of the uh, trial is when we just did the augmentin versus the placebo. I hope that makes sense. So inclusion criteria. So um, clinical improvement after 72 hours of treatment um, and the presence of all the stability criteria. So this was taken straight from the um, ATS and IDSA guidelines. So those participants that... We, we found at day three had to meet all of this criteria before being put into the three days versus eight days um, uh, uh, trial. So apyrexia, um, heart rate, respiratory rate, these were all analyzed along with blood pressure, um, oxygen saturation, and their mentation. So what were the outcomes? So um, primary outcome, so the cure, at, so we basically assessed cure at day 15, 
and at day 30. And the cure definition was by apyrexia, resolution or improvement of clinical signs or symptoms, and um, no additional antibiotic therapy. So you had to meet all three of these in order to be considered cured. And um, the individuals that were kind of as <clears throat> assessing this were there was a uh, intensivist and an infectious disease physician. So there was two like investigators that were um, kind of going on and assessing uh, the outcomes. Um, the secondary outcome was more so just the cure at day 30, uh, addressing any kind of adverse events and um, kind of understanding the quality of life, the length of hospitalization stay, and things like that. So um, there's a chart I'm going to show you to kind of give you a better visualization of this. So you had the intention to treat, and then you had the per-protocol analysis groups. So the intention to treat analysis had um, 152 patients, and then um, in the placebo, and for the beta-lactam group, you had 102. So the, and then the per-protocol analysis, obviously you have lesser patients. So what happened was the intent to treat was the initial patients that you're starting off with that got at least one treatment. And then the per-protocol is that between that, um, the day three to day 15, anybody that was like lost to follow-up or non-compliance, then they were part of that per-protocol analysis, just to kind of make sure you guys understand that lingo. So intention to treat, there was 68% um, uh, or sorry, 77% in the placebo group and then 68% uh, in the beta-lactam group that were determined to be cured. In the per-protocol analysis, 113 of the 145 participants in the placebo treatment and 100 of the 146, um, so 78 versus the 68.5% were um, cured. So this just kind of gives you a better depiction. So if you look at the top, um, you'll see that the intent, you'll see the intention to treat group and how, so that dotted vertical line is, um, indicates non-inferiority margin. So you basically, everybody that's before that line is uh, favoring three days versus everybody that would be past that would obviously favor the eight days. So for the, almost all of them are favoring three days by just taking a look at this. And um, let's see. Okay. So underneath that orange bar, you see all the other things that were analyzed, age, PSI scores. Um, and so the post hoc subgroup analysis, like everything below that orange box, shows no significant difference in the cure rate at day 15 between treatment groups among patients younger or older than 65 and patients with PSI score of less than 70 or 70 or higher, and um, patients with PSI scores of less than 91 or higher. And this was both in the intention of the treat and the per-protocol um, analysis population. So then the secondary outcome, so uh, they kind of broke down the, the groups similarly. So you have the intention of the treat, and then you have your per-protocol. So day 30, 74% participants in the placebo group and 76 participants in the beta-lactam group had been cured. There was no difference seen in the death rate at day 30. And then the median length of stay, like I mentioned earlier, was not significantly different between their groups and neither, neither was the median recovery time. And they also, on day 30, they also did uh, chest x-rays on all the patients that were remaining. So at the end of day 30, there was actually 282 patients that were um, left because uh, there was nine that were either lost to follow up, non-compliance. Um, so, 
So here's another little visualization. Um, and as you can see, the p-values are greater than 0.05. So, um, you know, we're able to reject our null, which was that three days um, was uh, inferior to the eight days. And then it also goes through the length of stay, which was averaging around five to six days. And then the recovery time was 15 days after the patient left the hospital. And something that didn't really clarify much on either was how long the patient um, stayed in the hospital after the trial began. So that was more so at the clinician's discretion. Um, it wasn't like, well, okay, you, this, you've gone three days of um, either, uh, you know, I, I, at some form of IV beta lactam, and then you were sent home. It was very unclear, you know, how they were getting discharged. So that was definitely a question I had. So addressing the adverse events, um, so 22 uh, patients in the placebo group versus the 29. Um, most common adverse uh, event for these patients was just digestive disorders and issues with some nausea and vomiting. And two serious adverse events did occur, one episode of hepatitis in the placebo group and then an episode of rash in the beta-lactam group. Um, three patients actually did pass away, unfortunately, in the placebo group, and this was mostly due to bacteremia, um, cardiogenic shock, or, and heart failure. And then two, unfortunately, passed away in the beta-lactam group, um, and that was due to pneumonia reoccurrence and pulmonary edema. So um, discussion, so basically the article was able to prove that uh, discontinuing beta-lactam treatment after three days in patients with community acquired pneumonia um, who were stable in outcomes uh, was similar to and non-inferior to those that needed the five additional days. Data support the concept that antibiotic therapy can be safely discontinued and it also um, helps with redu reduction in antibiotic exposure. So now going to the limitation. So um, I, I have a few limitations along with improvements I think should be made to the study. So it was a single country study, so just based in France, um, and they have different type of microbiological uh, resistance and patient level of care is different. Um, and then only patients with beta-lactam monotherapy were involved in the trial, and that's something that would be difficult for us, I think, um, really compare with just, you know, since we typically do um, the combination therapy. Uh, there wasn't a lot of effort to identify a causative microorganism. In the beginning of the trial um, and, you know, study, they did the, it, when the patient was admitted, um, it was up to the uh, attendings or whoever admitted them, their discretion to see if they wanted to do sputum cultures and things, but it wasn't very standardized, and, it, and it, we never really got the results of if they did have the, um, that microbiological data, what was it? So that was never mentioned in the study. Um, there was just no kind of reference to viral etiology, and then C-reactive protein, and then pro-cal analysis uh, wasn't very touched on, aside from just that initial CRP and pro-cal. And then just challenging diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, how they kind of had their own definition of defining it, opposed to what we're used to. So improvements to study. So um, f most of these patients were, you know, from France. Um, and so I think that kind of limits us there. 
Along with the sample size, um, even though in the beginning we were at like around like 710 patients, throughout the study due to just eligibility criteria, exclusion criteria, loss to follow up, all those things, it, we ended up coming down to like eight, 282 patients that were really involved with you know, the, the end point of what was going on. And I also wish they would have mentioned more on the vitals, uh, specifically the oxygen. You know, was, was the patient on nasal cannula? Were they on like a non-rebreather? What form of oxygen therapy were they on? So they, the, the authors really didn't go into detail and that wasn't really investigated much either. Um, and then the type of antibiotic prior to starting the trial. So when the patient was admitted, they were given either augmentin or third generation cephalosporin. So that was something that I thought was interesting because I'm sure if we were to kind of microanalyze this some more, you know, would there be a difference of patients that came in with the augmentin and then we did the three days versus eight days versus the cephalosporin with the three days versus eight days. So I think that's another kind of um, uh, you know, issue that I wish would have been a little bit more um, resolved and ironed out. So implications of this study. So among patients requiring um, admission, uh, moderately severe community-acquired pneumonia who met the clinical stability criteria, uh, discontinuing the antibiotic therapy proved to be non-inferior to the eight days of treatment. Um, so overall, I do applaud them for you know, investigating such an important and critical topic. Um, I just don't feel that this, you know, treatment practice is ready for prime time, mostly now with the pandemic. Um, and I just think that the, the best part about the study is that it just reinforces, um, you know, good antibiotic stewardship and the value of limiting therapy and just kind of understanding that more isn't necessarily always better, even though we do tend to, you know, fear that if we don't treat our patients long enough that there may be some concern for reinfection. So I, I still believe that large multinational trials with large sample size um, are needed before we start instituting um, major practice changes. So going back to our clinical scenario, a 70-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department for a three-week history of worsening cough and dyspnea. She's otherwise healthy and has no history of fever, chills, sweats, or sick contacts. Um, she has no current medications. On physical exam, pulse rate is 110 beats per minute and respiration rates of 26 uh, breaths per minute. Other vital signs are normal. Oxygen sats at 92%, breathing room air, and then lung uh, exam reveals inspiratory crackles bilaterally. Cardiovascular exam is normal. Chest radiograph shows left lower lobe infiltrate. Um, beta lactam antibiotic therapy was initiated. Which of the following is the most appropriate antibiotic treatment duration? So what do you guys think now after kind of analyzing three days versus eight, the eight days and understanding the current IDSA ATS guidelines? What do you think? Anybody have a guess? Okay, C. So you want to treat for at least a minimum of five days. So my references. And my QR code. Thank you, Dr. Kapoor. Do we have any questions? Um, any questions? Okay, here we go. Hold on. Well, it's for the recording. Thank you, Amy. That was a. Can you hear? Yeah, hear 
Okay, all right. That was a great presentation. Um, you know, I, I just, I just did a presentation on CAP with the newest IDSA guidelines, the 2019 guidelines to the hospitalist. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely some stark difference uh, between, uh, you know, the duration of therapy that's recommended um, and also the choice of antimicrobials as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, I think there's definitely multiple layers to this. For one, when you think about CAP, and you touched on this a little, um, vast majority of CAP is due to viral agents. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was very poignant that you said that the organisms, um, you know, were not identified because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's possible that it was a viral infection and it, w it would be really interesting to know um, uh, what percentage of those with the CAP diagnosis in that study mm -hmm. had a viral infection. And, and second of all, and appreciate that you talked about the overuse of antimicrobials as well. When you look at the IDSA guidelines, they are very specific about the choice of antimicrobials used um, when someone comes in with a diagnosis of CAP. Do they have risk factors for MRSA? Do they have risk factors for Pseudomonas aeruginosa? Mm -hmm. Does everyone who is coming in with a CAP diagnosis need vancomycin and zosin or vancomycin and cefepime? No, they don't. Mm -hmm. You know, have they had MRSA in the past? Have they had pseudomonas in the past, et cetera? Um, and also, you know, do they ha are they on parental nutrition? Do, or do they live in one of these long-term facilities? So those are all risk factors for these resistant organisms. So if they don't have those, do we really need to use these agents? Because we're seeing an increase in C. diff. We're mm -hmm. seeing an increase in multidrug-resistant organisms so um, it's just so, so important to know what we're treating why we're treating and how long we're treating and actually just um, I was just talking to our stewardship pharmacist Barry and he was saying that um, augmenting is available IV mm -hmm. in Europe mm -hmm. so you know and 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 so I guess they were using IV um, augmentin mm -hmm. or whatever they call it over there. Um, for IDSA, they recommend augmentin for CAP outpatient right. therapy, not right. in the inpatient setting. And obviously, another difference is they're using use of um, combined agent, beta-lactam, right. and another agent for um, CAP diagnosis mm -hmm. in the inpatient setting. So there's definitely some a lot of differences uh, in practice. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I thought it was an interesting study, and you presented it really well. And uh, you know, shorter duration of antimicrobials is definitely something to consider. Mm -hmm. um, you know, IDSA they recommend five days mm -hmm. um, minimum for these antimicrobials. So, um, thank you for the presentation. Of course. Okay, here we go. So yeah, great choice of topic, and a breakdown of a practice changing article. I remember hearing about this during last fall's uh, regional SHM conference, mm -hmm. Updates in Medicine. Uh, and uh, since I heard that presentation, I've been thinking about how do I incorporate it into my practice. Given that it's a non-inferior inferiority study, it's only there's only two trials testing three days. Uh, and it, yeah, it's not part of IDSA, ATS guidelines yet. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a lot of cases here in the hospital where uh, it's unclear if there's a pneumonia going on. It seems less likely, but you f feel somewhat of an obligation to treat. Mm -hmm. So, and that's where I've incorporated it into my practice. If uh, I'm not highly suspicious, but I feel like there's some obligation to treat, 
I'll treat for three days. If everything looks good at that point, mm -hmm. I'll stop. Um, but yeah, I'm encouraged by this study and that with future superiority tr trials that mm -hmm. we'll see that um, seems like in general in ID, we're trending towards treatment towards clinical resolution. Um, yeah, and I, th I think we're kind of headed towards um, understanding like antibiotic stewardship better um, because I've noticed um, more publications kind of coming out kind of geared more towards community acquired pneumonia. I know there's a recent one, I think it was in JAMA, where it talks about um, MRSA coverage and uh, mortality and morbidity at 30 days. Um, I actually almost included that in this this, but I figured there was already so much going on that I didn't. But for the residents, it's you know something new that's out, and it kind of compares the two. So, so I'm glad that it's there's more traction, and, and we're kind of revisiting um, something that's so common in the hospital. All right, thank you. Any other questions or comments for Dr. Kapoor? All right. Thank you very much. If you're watching online, remember the Survey Monkey will be in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. If you're in the room, you can scan it on the screen or we have a sheet here. And make sure you please sign in for us. We'll appreciate it. Thank you.